The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Grace, according to the Bible, grace is undeserved favor from God, undeserved blessing from God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't work for it. Not only do we not deserve it, it's Our status is the very opposite. We're evil, we're wicked, and yet God is gracious to sinners. So if you're a Christian, that's why we have this wonderful privilege to celebrate. Well, now we go to God's Word to continue in our worship. I would invite you, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John, or sorry, Luke chapter 4, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Those of you that have a traditional Bible can follow along as we look at the Scriptures, and maybe some of you study the Scriptures. using your phone or an electronic device, that's fine. The early church, in the days that Luke wrote, nobody had a Bible sitting in the audience. Realize that? So they had to listen attentively. We are greatly privileged. So we can hear from God today, but according to Him, He's told us how. He is not communicating to people in dreams and visions anymore. That's clear in Hebrews chapter 1. He did that in the past, but not anymore. He's not coming to people individually and separately. Uh, Scripture made it clear, and Jesus made this promise that God continues to speak because He's the living God, but He does it through His Scripture, the living Word of God, in in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So this is how we hear the voice of God. So this is a high and holy privilege we have to look to God's Word, the Scriptures, where God's speak, God has spoken. He's spoken authoritatively. He's spoken personally. And it's only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can actually fully grasp its meanings, but also its implications. So we trust the Holy Spirit is going to be our teacher this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in verses 38 to 44. Let me go ahead and read those, and you can follow along. Then we'll set the context, and then we'll jump right in. So starting at verse 38. This was after Jesus had been doing some ministry and preaching in a local synagogue where he grew up. Verse 38 says, Then he got up and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him to help her. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, or literally screaming, you are the Son of God, but rebuking them. He would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Luke chapter 4. Well, those of you who haven't been with us, you haven't had the privilege to be following in context where we started this gospel from the very beginning, Luke chapter 1. That's where we began, and so we've been going through section by section, pretty much story by story. Uh, Just by way of reminder, I wanted to set the context again for Luke because we need to be reminded of this. Luke is, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was a disciple, which Generically, just means a follower of Jesus. He came to know Christ a little later. It could have been after Jesus died, arose again, and ascended into heaven. And then he came under the ministry of the apostle Paul, and that's how Luke came to know Jesus. Luke was a physician, a doctor, very probably highly educated compared to most folks in that day. And as an assistant to the ministry of the apostle Paul, God called Luke to write down an account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have the Gospel of Luke. We've had it for 2,000 years. And it was, it's to be a complement to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. 
So Luke was a disciple, not an apostle. Uh, the events that he's writing about in these 24 chapters, Luke wasn't there. He wasn't present during the birth of Christ. He wasn't there in Jerusalem when Jesus was preaching publicly. It could be that Luke actually never heard Jesus preach personally, never saw it, never witnessed it, whereas Matthew and John and Mark, who wrote the other three Gospels, they got to see the ministry of Jesus Christ. They were present. They heard Jesus teach. They saw His miracles. Luke didn't see that firsthand, and that's why in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing this book to someone he knows named Theophilus. And Theophilus probably uh, is on the fence or is about to become a Christian, very interested in Christianity. There are many competing religions in paganism at the time, and Theophilus is a respected person, an educated person, apparently a wealthy person, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke had a ministry to this man, and it was very personal, and so Luke ends up writing two entire long books about the person of Christ to minister to Theophilus. And we are blessed as a result because we have these two books on the ministry of Christ. And so Luke says in chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, many have written things about Jesus up to this point. This is about 60 A.D., maybe 25 years after Jesus left planet Earth and went back to heaven. And Paul the Apostle has been ministering, preaching for about 15, 20 years, planting churches. Luke's been by his side. And Luke's telling Theophilus, hey, I can uh, make an account of the ministry of Jesus Christ for the purpose, verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So Luke writes this whole book, and he's telling Theophilus, you know what? Here's a reliable account of the ministry of Jesus Christ, Theophilus, because I got this information from eyewitnesses, men who were there, women who were there. And so we've talked about that. So a lot of what Luke was brought together and compiled were from personal conversations he had as he, he was able to visit Jerusalem on more than one occasion, no doubt hunted down the apostles that were still alive, and talked to them and got information firsthand, probably talked to Mary as well. And then Luke was being led by the Spirit of God this entire time. And then Luke wrote it all down. And he wrote it all down at his volition, at his discretion, at his selection, with his personality, with his touch. And at the same time, 100% was guided by the Holy Spirit to write down exactly what God wanted in his gospel. And so that's why we say that the gospel of Luke is Scripture and it is inspired by God, breathed out by God. Even though Luke got all of his information from eyewitnesses, either through personal conversation, written accounts that were reliable, and then he compiled all together. And there very well could be new information that God revealed to Luke as well, either directly from the Spirit of God or maybe from the Apostle Paul, and he puts it all together. And So that's what we have here. And go to verse 4 at chapter 1. And Paul make, uh, Luke makes this beautiful statement that's a promise for us. I'm writing these things down based on reliable eyewitnesses, and also he's guided by the Spirit of God. Why are you writing this book, Luke? So that, for the purpose of, that you, Theophilus, may know, you may know the exact truth. He is promising Theophilus, I'm writing th these things down, and as a result, if you understand and believe, you can have exact truth. You know what that means? Full certainty. Complete, full certainty about what? About the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ, which all leads to the all-important question. Can we know who Jesus Christ truly was? Can we know what He taught and expected? Can we believe it? And can we know it with complete, full certitude? Well, the answer is yes. The world will tell you no. Academia will tell you no. Postmodernism will tell you no. You can't be certain about anything. And here's Luke chapter 1, Verse 2 and 4 saying, absolute certainty from Almighty God. Based on the Scriptures and the Spirit of God that lives in you if you're a Christian. That's just a beautiful promise. That is encouraging to the heart. There's many things in this world we can't be certain about, right? The one thing that is certain is what God has said in His Word. So let's go ahead and look at the context now. We saw that uh, what Luke's doing is he's laying out evidence valid evidence for Theophilus to establish the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he started out by uh, talking about the supernatural origin of Jesus, where he came from in his birth. He was born of a virgin. Never been done, never will be repeated. As a matter of fact, that was predicted in the Old Testament of the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. So Luke's laying out that evidence. And then he lays out Old Testament prophecies that were predicted hundreds of years before that Jesus fulfilled 
to a T. One of those is the virgin birth. And then Luke's laying out more evidence about, well, the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would have a forerunner, and he would be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Luke unveils that that was the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was first and foremost a witness of the Messiah, validating the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's just mounting evidence upon evidence of who Jesus is, and that he is to be taken at his word by how he preached and how it's revealed in Scripture. And so the rest of the book, where we are now, Luke chapter 4 through 24, Luke's going to continue to do that. He's going to keep, like, kind of like a lawyer, a historian and lawyer, laying out all these lines of insalable, unassailable evidence of who Jesus is and who he said he was. And, and the miracles are part of that. So we're going to see some miracles today. Jesus did miracles. We're going to see why he did miracles. What was the purpose? Because there's a lot of confusion among Christians about the purpose of miracles. But when we study the life of Christ, it's very clear. Jesus even tells us the purpose of his miracles. So uh, we get all kinds of amazing evidence that Jesus is indeed who he said he was, the Messiah. Let's go ahead and look at it. Go back to verses 38 to 44. If you wanted a title for the sermon today on this passage, I ended up just calling it, get this, Last week, we were reminded that God the Father is loving. God the Father is loving. In that John 3 passage, that was amazing. And if you're a Christian, we learned last week that God the Father loves you, if you're a Christian, as much as He loves Jesus. I don't know if you meditated on that week. Man, I meditate. I milked that for all it was worth this week. God the Father loves His people. Very encouraging. Well, here's another encouraging statement that flows from this passage. Can you handle it? Can you handle more encouragement? It's Jesus is sovereign over all. That really is the underlying theme through all these little vignettes and incidents that happen in these verses that at first blush as you read through it is like, wow, these aren't even related to one another. Yeah, they are. The underlying theme is Jesus is sovereign over all. Sovereign, that's a big word. How do you even spell it? Well, if you wrote sovereign on the board, you could see that, oh, there's another little word inside of sovereign, and it's reign. There's your definition of sovereign. That's what it means. Reign. Jesus reigns. To say that Jesus is sovereign, it means He reigns. It means He is King. He is the all-powerful authority. And we see that in this passage with every incident that happens. It's just amazing as we read it. Another spontaneous day in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and no matter what's going on, and the world falling apart around Him, and people uh, having all kinds of anxiety and disease and illness, and Jesus is totally calm and in control every step of the way in every chapter in Luke, in all four Gospels. Jesus is always totally in control. Jesus is sovereign over all. I don't know what your week was like this last week, but if it was like the typical week, or maybe I should say how your day's been so far, topsy-turvy and all over the place, and maybe your drive to church, same thing, the instability that comes with life, And as you look around, it just gets worse. And as you read the newspapers, instability all the more. It's cause for panic. It's cause for depression and many other things, but not for the Christian meditating on the truth. Jesus is sovereign over all. So we're going to see that. See it specifically in three ways. I'll give you those. Jesus is sovereign over all, specifically over physical disease. See that in this passage? Over physical disease. That's verses 38 to 40. Jesus is sovereign all not only over physical disease, but also over invisible demons or over the invisible world. Over the invisible world, 41, verse 41. And then finally, Jesus is sovereign over all, verses 42 to 44, and that's over human demands. He's sovereign over human demands. So let's go ahead and start with that first one, this wonderful promise that Jesus is sovereign over all. He's in control of everything. He reigns. He's king of kings. No, nothing is a surprise to him. Nothing is unforeseen to him. Nothing is confusing to him as he reigns from heaven on high right now and as he reigned even on earth in the perfect will of the Father. He had just, in Luke, he just began his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we saw that a couple of events. His ministry kicked off at age 30. Remember, he didn't do anything for 30 years. Silence, no miracles, no teaching, 30 years. Total obscurity for the most part. Then at age 30, he leaves home, and he's doing the will of the Father. He had a ministry about three and a half years. The first event of his ministry was his baptism by John the Baptist. We saw that already. 
that was recorded in Luke chapter 3. The first thing that happens after Jesus is baptized and God the Father calls out literally audibly from heaven, talking of His Son in whom He is well pleased, immediately after baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God and Satan Himself into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. And that's uh, Luke chapter 4, we saw that. Then if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When the devil had finished tempt, uh, every temptation, uh, the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. Thus, Jesus begins his ministry. The next verse, 14, says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Jesus spread through all the surrounding district. Now, that's kind of odd. Wait, Jesus just got baptized. He hasn't done any miracles or preaching yet. And it says, news spread him about him all over the place, How, and news was going everywhere. How's that possible? Well, because between verses 13 and 14, you've got to write John chapter 1, verses 19 through John chapter 3, the ministry of G Jesus down in Judea where he did his first miracle, water into wine, cleansed the temple, which made people mad. That's how he began his ministry, turned water into wine, and then he went and cleansed the temple, made the Jewish leadership mad, and they said, we're going to kill you, and they did three years later. So that, that's all got to go between verses 13 and 14. Then that's why in verse 14 it says, and so Jesus returns to Galilee where he was from because these Jews in Jerusalem are trying to kill him. And he goes in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread like wildfire. How's that? Because it was Passover when he did that miracle and cleansed the temple. And so everybody spread from Jerusalem and the word got out. Why did you hear about that? That Jesus guy, the carpenter guy, the carpenter's son? Whoo! Man, he did an amazing, unbelievable, unrepeatable miracle. Not only that, he made the leadership down there mad. He turned the tables upside down during Passover week. That's the news that got out. And this is spreading like wildfire. Now, Israel's not a large country, so that's why we have what we have. So now his life is threatened, and so now he's going to go back to Galilee. So that's where we are. And you can, if you're taking notes, John chapter, or Luke chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through Luke chapter 9, verse 50, is the Galilean ministry. And this is going to last for a year and a half. So this is what Jesus is doing. For the next year and a half, he's kind of avoiding Jerusalem, and he's preaching all around Galilee, northern Israel. At that time, they say there were 240 towns in Galilee, and Jesus was hitting every single one. They had dozens and dozens and dozens of Jewish synagogues. Jesus hit probably every single one for a year and a half, teaching in the synagogue, doing miracles, spreading His message. And this is the beginning of it in Luke chapter 4 where we are. So the first thing He does, He does some ministry down in Judea, goes back up to Galilee, begins His ministry in Galilee, that will kick off the year and a half ministry. The first thing He does is He goes into a synagogue, reads Isaiah, he says, I'm the Messiah, and then they get angry and chase him out of town, try to kill him. That's where he grew up, Nazareth, my hometown. Then Jesus decided, wow, I'm moving. So he did. He moved 16 miles away from Nazareth, his hometown, in Capernaum. or Capernaum. Why? Because they were nicer there. Peter did the same thing. Peter was born in Bethsaida, and then he moved to Capernaum. And that was the headquarters for the apostles, and Jesus, where he had uh, his headquarters as well for the rest of his life, his ministry on earth in Capernaum. And so then Jesus gets chased out of the synagogue in Nazareth. So then he, we saw last time, two weeks ago, that he went to another uh, synagogue, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. He came down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, uh, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So this is where we left off in Luke. So here's the context. Uh, Jesus goes to another city. He's not going to stop teaching in synagogues just because people chase him out of the synagogue. He's not going to stop teaching the Bible and the truth about who he is just because people are trying to kill him. That's not going to stop him. Okay, I'll just move on. And he did. So he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum, if you saw it on a map in Israel, it's up in Galilee. It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And we were privileged, my wife and I, to go there a few years ago. Some of you have been there. It's beautiful today. We visited all of Israel. When we got to Capernaum, right there by the sea, um, by the Sea of Galilee, I wanted to live there. I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. That was kind of my attitude. But anyway, it's still there today. You can visit it. And there's there are vestiges of 2,000-year-old synagogues there. There are not many. Israel's a small place. There are stones from what they think is maybe Peter's house. They don't know. Could be. Still there. There's literal historical evidence. That this is true and historical. So that's where Jesus was. So he's teaching in the synagogue there. 
And he's teaching with, verse 32, we saw last week, uh, they, the people were listening to him and they were amazed. They had rabbis come teaching in the synagogue all the time. Usually it was, ho-hum, another sleeper. Why, what was the, the average rabbi doing? Oh, he was quoting the, all the uh, human tradition and the Talmud, and this rabbi said this, and this rabbi said this, and these two rabbis disagreed about this, and this rabbi said this, and they're like, wait, where's this in the Bible? Actually, they weren't saying that, where's this in the Bible? They had been conditioned to think that human tradition was important. And it was rote. It was tedious. It was mundane. It was routine. It was irrelevant. It wasn't life-changing. It wasn't convicting. It was actually deceptive. It was misleading. It was smothering the truth of the Bible, the Word of God. Scripture, the Old Testament. That was what was routine. So then Jesus comes along, this new rabbi, where did he come from? He reads from Scripture, and he actually explains the meaning of the Scripture, and that is startling to them. It is eye-opening. Whoa! They'd never seen anything like it. Not only that, he's got divine revelation from the Father, new information he's giving they had never heard before. That's not just startling. That was awe-inspiring. It made some people question It made many excited. Some people were amazed. And the leaders were threatened by that. So there are all kinds of different responses to Jesus' teaching. That's why in verse 32 it says, and they were amazed at His teaching. They were awed by His teaching. Why? Well, because He's teaching the Bible. The Bible has inherent power. You know, a sinful, fallen, frail ignorant sinner who's faithful can get up and teach and preach the Bible, and the response can be that people are awed and amazed. And also through the second part, not only were they amazed by His teaching, but also His message was with authority. Anybody that teaches the Bible faithfully today, you can be a a woman teaching a Sunday school class to second-year-olds or second-graders, and if you're teaching the Bible as is, you're teaching with authority. And it should amaze people. It should amaze those little ones the living Word of God, and that's what He did. They, they don't know why it's amazing. They don't know why it's authoritative, but it is. So there's all these different responses. And then there's a demon-possessed man there. We saw that, and he gets cast out. And that was their service uh, on a Saturday at synagogue. So they had synagogue on Saturdays, and it started in the morning. Much of our service that we do is modeled after a synagogue service 2,000 years ago. Did you know that? We meet in buildings. Early Christians met in buildings. They met in old synagogues. They sat like this. They had a pulpit. They had somebody up front reading Scripture, expositing Scripture. They taught the Word of God. Women were invited. Women were encouraged to learn, just as in the church they're encouraged to learn, not just men. That was unique. Children were encouraged to learn as well. Get this. They would finish around lunchtime. And get, get this, they'd go to a fellowship meal. I like that. That was the routine of the synagogue. We see that in this passage, so let's go ahead and look at it. So Jesus finishes teaching in the synagogue, and then verse 38 Under that first point, Jesus has sovereign power over physical diseases. So he finishes preaching in the synagogue. He casts out a demon. Everybody's uh, amazed at his teaching. They have questions about, they don't even know who Jesus is. They think they do, but they don't. And then we get into our passage here. And Jesus manifests his authority. It says, then he got up. So he leaves the synagogue. Then he got up and he left the synagogue. This is Sabbath. This is on a Saturday. That's not the Lord's day. We don't celebrate the Sabbath today. Today is not the Sabbath. We don't celebrate the Christian Sabbath. Colossians 2 says we don't celebrate the Sabbath. The Bible says we celebrate the Lord's day. The Lord's day in the Bible is Sunday. It's resurrection day. The apostles laid down that pattern. So we celebrate the Lord's day. So it's a little different. But as a Jew in fulfillment of the Mosaic law, he's celebrating, honoring the Sabbath by the teaching of the Word of God. Another reason that, uh, so then he got up, he leaves the synagogue, and he's going to the fellowship meal. It's probably about noon. Where's the fellowship meal? Well, it's being hosted by Peter, apparently. Our verse says that he entered Simon's home. That's Peter the apostle. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't even been designated as an apostle yet. He's just a disciple, one of the early disciples that Jesus called. A parallel passage, if Mark and Matthew give us a parallel passage, it wasn't just Simon. Uh, Mark says that immediately after the synagogue service, they came into the house of Simon, which is Peter, and Andrew. Simon and Peter, they were brothers. This is 
the house with James and John. So this is at the fellowship meal. Peter and Andrew brothers, James and John, Jesus, that's five at the fellowship meal. And they entered Simon's home. And now Simon's mother-in-law, oh, there's another one, Simon's mother-in-law. And by implication, that means if Simon had a mother-in-law, Peter had a mother, that means Peter was married. This is Peter's wife's mom. Pope Peter was married. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. Celibacy is not in the Bible. Celibacy is not more spiritual than getting married. Celibacy is a gift, very rare for very, very few people, and it's not better or more spiritual than getting married. It's clear in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 7 and many other passages. Peter was married. He had a wife, and so Peter's probably having his mother-in-law live at his house. There's no mention of Peter's father-in-law could, that he passed on. And so as good children, Peter and his wife, they're taking care of mom, mother-in-law. So here's the fellowship meal that they're having at the house. And so they get there, and it says that mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Matthew and Mark say she was suffering from a fever. She was laying down. That's how sick she was. She was laying down with a fever. Fever is the Greek word where we get the word pyro, as in pyromaniac, as in fire. She was laying down with fire. She was as hot as can be. That's a fever, isn't it? It's the Greek word. Well, Luke, who's a doctor and more, has more precision regarding medical care, probably in health, he doesn't just say she had a fever like Matthew and Mark do. He says specifically she had a high fever, literally the Greek word mega fever, mega fire. She was burning up. In his day, you die from a fever. That's probably her fate. She's laying down. She's out of commission. As a result, Simon and Andrew and the other apostles, well, they're not apostles yet, disciples of Jesus, no doubt Simon's uh, wife, it says they asked Jesus to help her. Jesus, can you look in on my, my mother? No, absolutely. Jesus is just a, a loving Savior. He's compassionate to help her. So he does, verse 39, and standing over her, standing over her, he, he rebuked the fever. That's what he did. He yelled at the fever. That's weird. This is not for you to try at home. Why? Because you're not Jesus. Neither am I. Don't invite me to your house to rebuke a fever. I can't do it. This is Jesus, almighty God in a human body. Jesus is unique. He does things nobody else does. He yells at a fever. Well, did it kind of linger? Was she feeling kind of weak and queasy afterwards? Did she need a time of recuperation? No. Uh, Luke says it left her. It left her. Not only did it leave her, it left her immediately. It left her immediately. He rebukes the fever, and it left her immediately. And then she immediately got up and waited or served on everybody, because that's what mother-in-laws do at the fellowship meal. Praise the Lord. This is astounding. She probably was on the brink of death. Well, why did they take it upon themselves, Peter and Andrew? How'd they even know Jesus could do that? Because they saw Jesus do a, an amazing miracle already, turning water into wine at that wedding. And Luke, or John 2 goes on to say that he did many more signs that his disciples saw, and as a result, they believed. So his disciples, no, man, he... He can do miracles. He's supernatural. There's something unique about Jesus. Notice the apostles couldn't do this. Peter, the head apostle. Peter, the supposed vicar of Christ. He couldn't do this. Peter, the greatest Christian there ever was. He couldn't do this. Only Jesus does. Jesus is unique. Jesus is sovereign over all. Peter's not sovereign over all. Peter's not sovereign over much. Neither are we. Jesus is unique. This, this is astounding, like I said. We don't know who else was there, but Jesus is doing a miracle. Jesus had just promised in the synagogue, this is why he was sent, that God, remember uh, at the temptation, Satan lied to him, one of the first, second temptation maybe, and the devil, Satan, told Jesus, hey, if you do what I tell you to do, I'll give you dominion over all. You know what that is? Satan was saying, Hey, if you do what I tell you to do, I will give you all authority. 
liar. Why? Because you don't have any authority, Satan. God has all authority. And here Jesus is exercising that sovereign authority that Satan promised him. He doesn't need Satan. Satan doesn't have that authority. Where did Jesus' authority come from? Well, Luke already told us uh, after the temptation, it says that he went into the desert uh, and returned to God. Oh, he came out of the desert and he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's his authority. Jesus' authority came from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's sovereign authority. Then he quoted from Isaiah, which predicted that the Messiah would be given all authority by Almighty God, Yahweh Himself, and He would do it through the ministration of the Holy Spirit. So that was also in Luke when Jesus read Isaiah. He has all authority. The Spirit of God has anointed me. That is authority. He has sent me. I'm an ambassador on behalf of Almighty God. That is authority. And not only that, was I sent by God and anointed by God to do Amazing things, recovery of the sight, to do miracles, to set people free from their sin, to proclaim and to preach. That's authority. And Jesus taught with authority. We already saw that. He has authority. He has authority. All authority. He has authority here over sickness and disease. So they see these miracles. And then, so people had heard the buzz. Oh, wait, that Jesus, that rabbi guy, he came back from Passover, and now he's in, here up in Galilee. And it's a buzz all around the surrounding districts. But it is the Sabbath. And so there are people in all of these towns all over Galilee, and they've heard about Jesus. They want to see this Jesus. They're intrigued by Jesus. They know that He can do miracles because they've heard about it, and even miracles of healing. And they have relatives that are sick and bedridden and paralytic and blind and missing limbs and maybe babies on the point of death. But they can't do anything about it. They feel helpless. They want to take their loved ones to Jesus, but they can't. Why? Because they can't carry Him on the Sabbath. So what do they all do in unison? Oh, okay. Let's, uh, what time is it? Where's the sundial? Hey, let's wait till the sun goes down and Sabbath is over, and then we'll rush to Jesus with our loved ones, and then maybe He will heal them. So multiply that by hundreds and hundreds of people who are going to converge on Peter's house. All at the same time. Am I exaggerating? No. Because Mark says in a parallel passage, the whole city gathered at the door. The whole city. So that's uh, going back to Luke in the passage there. It says, demons also... Oh, wait, verse 40, sorry. While the sun was still setting, so just as uh, when Sabbath was about to end, all those, all those, Luke is emphatic, all those who had any, so all and any, everybody, who were sick with various diseases, it didn't matter, all kinds of diseases, real diseases, chronic diseases, organic diseases, diseases that you could see that were manifestly visible, not those like psychosomatic problems like, oh, lower back pain, those kind of things. Well, I have lower back pain, but I'm talking about those kinds of select narrow so-called ailments that are healed by spiritual healers today claim to have the power of Jesus. Hey, come to my conference, get a ticket, put a lot of money in the plate, and you can watch me do a miracle on somebody else, and I'll heal their lower back pain. And I'm not kidding. In these, it's very common today. You turn on the television, all these staged events, be discerning people. Look, what, how, look how Jesus healed, and then look what we're confronted with today, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's always contrived, it's always staged, tight parameters, security guards, the healer's inaccessible, there's no manifest disease being healed. Wait, uh, did that person, were they missing an arm and now they have an arm instantly? No, you will never see that. It'll be a so-called disease or whatever that you can't see, that you can't validate, that you can't verify, that can't be established, there's no follow-up. That's the way it is today, and that's why it's been going on for quite some time, and Jesus said that would happen. Peter warned us that would happen. They're charlatans. They're phonies. They're fakes. Just about every New Testament writer said, be warned of this. Jesus said that himself. Be warned of false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers. That's a main message of being a discerning Christian. And it's the sick who are most vulnerable here. It's the hurting who are most vulnerable. It's the lonely who are most vulnerable. And they're preyed upon. 
That's not Jesus. In the, in, we looked at the words. Well, who did Jesus heal? This was spontaneous. This wasn't a staged event. Oh, you can't come in. You didn't pass security. Did you pay $22.99 for your ticket for entry fee? No. Who do you invite? All. He turned no one away. No one. All. He brought them to him and laying hands on each one of them, all, any, everyone, every disease, he healed them all. This phrase is repeated throughout the Gospels. Do you know that by the time Jesus was done, three and a half years of ministry, he had healed virtually every person in Israel? Everywhere he went. He healed everywhere he went, without exception. Instantaneously, completely, wholly, fully. And the purpose of it was to validate his ministry. Jesus didn't do miracles to heal for the sake of doing miracles to heal. That isn't why he did it. It was very specific. He said in the Gospel of John and other places, my works, my signs, my miracles validate that I was sent from the Father. My, work, my miracles validate the credibility of my preaching ministry. That's why I came. I didn't come to do miracles. I came to preach. I came to preach the good news. I came to preach a specific message. We're going to see that in point number three. But Jesus has sovereign power over all disease. Well, then, you know, people look around today. Well, I read the Bible and I see all these miracles happening and people getting healed. Why isn't that going on today? So much for your Bible and Christianity or your God. Well, they don't understand the Bible. It's never been that way. Jesus had a unique ministry. There weren't all kinds of miracles happening all throughout the Old Testament. Very rare. It was the distinct ministry of Jesus for three and a half years. Did miracles that no one else could ever do, will never re replicate ever again. As a, to authenticate who he was, he was God in the flesh. Very important. He, he said in John chapter 12 to the folks standing around him, as they were crushing in on me, he said, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me with you. And that is true. Jesus left, and these miracles aren't happening since Jesus left. But when Jesus was there on earth, he cared about people, their sickness, their disease. We asked the question, well, why do people get sick? Why do people get uh, deformities? Why is there disease? Why is there death? The Bible has a clear answer. It is sin. That's the bottom. That is not a platitude. That is not simplistic or superficial. That's God's answer. They're all a byproduct of sin. The wages of sin is death, says the New Testament. And God in the beginning said, you eat, you sin, you die. Every soul that sins shall die, God said in Ezekiel 18. That's why there's sickness, death, and disease. And Jesus came to eradicate the root of that, which is sin, which He's already done. And in the future, the byproduct of the problem of sin is going to be eradicated as well in the resurrection body. So that's what we look forward to. We have hope in the resurrection when, when God will finish His plan of redemption. The hope of the resurrection. So he has power over disease. He also has power over invisible demons. Verse 41, demons also were coming out of many shouting. Literally, the, the word there is screaming or shrieking. Just this eerie, piercing, frightening, foreign, really supernatural, demonic sound of a voice. And, and Jesus brought that out of demons. Demons were also coming. We already saw a demon-possessed man previously. Demons also were coming out of many, many people were demon-possessed. And that's another thing. You read the Bible, you read the Gospels. Man, you know, it seemed like everybody uh, was demon-possessed or there were a lot of demon-possessed people. When you look around today, there are no demon-possessed people on planet Earth today. That's what many people have concluded. That's what some Christians have concluded. Definitely, if you look around today, it's not like in the days of Jesus where there were a lot of people who were demon-possessed. I'm thinking, no, nothing has changed. Demons are just as real Jesus, uh, demons are just as frequent. Demons are still preying on human beings. And there are plenty of people around planet Earth that are demon-possessed. We just don't know about it because we're not Jesus. Jesus was unique. A demon or a, sat a Satan-inspired person or a demon-possessed person could not stand in the, the presence of the blessed, holy, sinless Son of God, Jesus, without saying anything and reacting. That's why we, he saw everywhere he went. We can go, we're walking by people all the time on the streets, and who knows how many of them are demon-possessed. It's not our prerogative, though, to point at them and say, you're demon-possessed. Or you get mad at somebody and you say, you're demon-possessed. That's not legit. You're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus. But the implication is human beings are being preyed upon and are demon-possessed even today. It's been true all throughout history. And Jesus is sovereign over them all still. 
So are there people getting possessed by demons today? Yes. Are demons real? Yes, just as they're described in the Bible. Is Satan real? He is a real personality. A lot of Christians, sadly, don't believe that. One influential theologian that I was talking to, and we had a long discussion for now. And just at the end, I was just curious, I said, do you believe, and I think I told you this, do you believe Satan is real? And he just stopped, paused, didn't say anything. Fifteen seconds went by, and he said, you know, if you asked me that 20 years ago, I would have said yes. Okay, that's enough said. Satan is real. That's why I put invisible world. As humans, we can't see demons, and we shouldn't go looking for demons. So are there demon-possessed people today? Yes. Can God minister to them? Yes. Does Jesus have sovereign power over them? Yes. What is God's tool? Do we get a crucifix and go around chase them down with a candle and for hours and hours do an exorcism on them? No. Do we throw holy water on them? No. What do we do? The most powerful thing is giving them the truth of the Word of God, the living Word of God, through the power of the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. There it is. For salvation. For anyone who believes. That's the power. There's our power. It's not with us. It's not through my machinations and my gyrations and my incantations. It's the power of the Word of God. It's the power of the gospel. And there are plenty of testimonies of people who have come to know Jesus, who have been saved, and they can testify, you know what, I was controlled by demons. And I heard the gospel, I got saved, and I was liberated and saved by Jesus himself. Verse 41, demons also were coming out of many, shouting and shrieking, and they were saying to Jesus to his face, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You know, that's a true statement. You know what they meant? You are one with the Father. You know what they meant? You are deity. You are God. You are all-powerful. You alone are to be worshipped. You alone are the creator. You alone are the judge. That's what son of God means. Well, isn't that good? They're getting a free commercial, Jesus is, from the demons? No. They're conniving. They're liars. They're deceptive. It's illegitimate. It's insincere. It's misleading. So what does Jesus do? He tells them to shut up. Well, that's not nice language. Well, that's what he did because that's what they deserved. He rebuked them. Shut up. He says that many times. Shut up. Silence. Quiet. And instantaneously, they must obey. Why? Because Jesus has power over demons themselves. Do we have the ability to go around and rebuke demons? Nope. Do we have the power to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Do we have the power to pray? Absolutely. Do we have the power to trust God? Absolutely. The book of James says, run away from demons. Have nothing to do with them. Don't go toe-to-toe and tango with them. We don't have the ability to do that. It's the power of Jesus Christ, His gospel, His word, His spirit. Told him to be quiet, rebuking them, he sh- uh, and He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Messiah. So He has power over demons. And then finally, Jesus is sovereign over all, and He has power over human demands. What's the most dangerous of these three options? Physical disease and death, invisible demons, or human demands? Hmm, that is debatable. But human demands, our will, our sinful will, can be pretty evil, can be pretty self-centered. And that's what's going on here. you got all these people that came to Peter's house, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people pushing in on the door. Jesus was patient as can be, and He healed every single one. This probably went on to early in the morning. He would turn no one away. And they're loving it. Oh, great, we got a genie with us all the time. Let's keep him in town so that we can just keep having miracles all the time, and anytime we get sick, we'll go to Jesus. They were very parochial and narrow-minded in the ministry of Jesus Christ, who wasn't the Savior of Galilee or Capernaum. He was the Savior of the world. He has a mission from the Father. So Jesus is sovereign over human will, human understanding, human preferences, and that's what comes out here. So when day came, so maybe Jesus didn't even sleep that night. When day came, Jesus left the home of Simon Peter and He went to a secluded place, an isolated place, a, des- a deserted place. The idea there is where no one was around. He got his quiet time. We need our quiet time. Jesus needed his quiet time to recoup, but primarily to pray with the Father. He's got to talk to the Father. He's got to be refreshed by the Father. He's got to get wisdom from the Father. He is in tune 100% with the Father. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, goes to a secluded place. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that's what Mark tells us in the parallel passage, it was early in the morning, and he was praying. 
So he's praying, and he's all by himself. And then the apostles hunt him down. They know where he is. Why? Because the crowds were successfully able to manipulate Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Hey, tell us where your master is. Tell us where the rabbi is. Tell us where to go. And they finally caved and gave in. And so the disciples, they hunt Jesus down. He wants to be alone. They invade his space. They press in upon him. And look what they said. Uh, they came... Luke says the crowds were searching for him, but Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter, James, and John were the ones that found Jesus and says, hey, the crowds, they're looking for, hey, somebody's looking for you. Jesus is not going to be distracted from the will of God just because there's a demand. So that's the they. So the crowds were searching for him. You know the word for searching there is craving. This is a self-centered, lustful craving that is totally illegitimate. This is not a good thing. Jesus, all the crowd, they're, they're looking for you. They're searching for you. They're vying for you because they want to use you. That's really what's going on here. And Jesus knows this. He discerns that. He knows what's in the heart of man as the Spirit of God reveals that to him. They were searching for him, craving for him. And the apostles came to him and they told him that. And their purpose was, they were, what were the crowds trying to do? They were trying to keep Jesus from going away. Hey, we want you here. We want you for us. That's selfish. That's self-centered. That's not thinking of others. That's not thinking of the mission of the Father or Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes them. No, sorry. Too bad. And one of the first important lessons He gave these men who were going to be His apostles. We only do the Father's will. And the Father's will isn't to cater to every self-centered desire of any man walking down the street. It's to be in the will of God. Sometimes you have to say no to people, and He did here. So He said to them, so this really gets to the priority of Jesus. So if I were to ask you, why did Jesus come into the world 2,000 years ago? What might you say? Why did Jesus come into the world? There is no more important question. You get all kinds of answers from people. Why did Jesus come into the world? Um, to do good social work. To be a good moral role model. That's an important one that people say. To be a good role model. Today it's to be uh, an exemplary social justice warrior. No, that isn't why He came. He came for one purpose. He articulated it several different ways, but it was really one purpose. He tells us the purpose of why He came here. Verse 43, He said uh, to them, I must preach the kingdom of God. I must preach. By the way, the, the word for preach there and the word for preach in verse 44, there are two different words for preach, two different Greek words. The first one is euangelizo, evangelize. Good news, literally good news. I must good news. I must speak about the good news of the kingdom of God. Some translations say that. I must. I've been called. That's what God wants me to do, first and foremost. Jesus never read, wrote a book. Uh, Jesus never did a lot of things, but one thing He did do was he, he preached, and that was the nature of His ministry. First and foremost, Jesus was a preacher. And what was He doing? He was speaking about the meaning of His death and resurrection. They go together. They are inseparable. Not preaching about just anything. It was very narrow. All the implications of His death and resurrection that had to do with sin, the sin of humanity, and all that comes with that. That was His mission. That's the Great Commission. That is the focus. It is very narrow. It's very specific. It's the only solution for mankind. Jesus came to preach. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news to overcome the bad news. The bad news is sin, sin that condemns everyone, every one of us. And we can be liberated from that sin through Jesus Christ, who He is, His death and resurrection, by grace, through faith. That is the good news of the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom, the kingdom is the fact that Jesus is king. It's real simple. That's the good news. And I must do this to other cities. And he did, 240 plus cities as far as we know from history, which meant everywhere in Galilee in a year and a half. That's why I was sent. I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on. He kept, and he did it. He fulfilled his word. He kept on preaching. Keruso is the Greek word there. Keruso. What's that? Uh, a formal edict or decree given by someone who declares on behalf of the king. It is an authoritative message. It is a universal message. It is a binding message. You must obey that message. You're accountable for that message. No one is excused from that message. It's for everyone, the message of the king. You know, sometimes we hear Christians say, well, they're not a Christian. Uh, they're not going to listen to the Bible. Well, they're not a Christian. They don't believe the Bible. Well, they're not a Christian. They're not accountable to the Bible. Yeah, they are. God is the creator, and they know it. God is the judge, and they know it. 
We're all accountable. K. Russo, a lot loaded in that word of the nature of his preaching. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I'm going to stop there as we prepare our hearts for communion, but I, I want to just close with these few. Well, what are the implications from this passage, this text, and the ministry of Jesus? Not the applications, that's different. Pastor, how do I apply this? What are the applications? Uh, I, I don't know, I can't tell you. Because applications change from person to person, week to week, day to day. And they are countless. But the implications of the passage, those are narrow, those are few, those are universal, those are unchanging. And here are the implications from the passage we just read. And it's from these applications that we can meditate upon and then come up with applications on your own through the help of the Holy Spirit in your own life. What are some implications from this passage? Number one, Jesus has power over sickness and disease. We see that historically. And for you as a Christian, what does that mean? It explains the meaning of disease and death in this life, and we need an answer. We need an answer from God because people ask why. That's an important, legitimate question. Why? It provides comfort. It provides knowledge to the will of God, but only that it gives us hope because we're looking to the resurrection. We're not there yet. The hope of the resurrection, it is coming. It is guaranteed. What's another implication? Jesus is one with the Father. Remember, He's the Son of God. He is one with the Father, so He is deity. He is God. He's all-powerful. Uh, another implication, Jesus has power over the demonic, invisible world, and it reigns supreme today. And every single one of us here, if you're a Christian or not a Christian today, you are in either the family of God or in the family of Satan. Even if you don't believe it, that's just the way it is. That's what Jesus said, and it needs to be taken seriously and we can only be rescued from the domain of darkness one way, and that's through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the last one is Jesus came, last implication, Jesus came for a specific purpose, and that was to preach the good news, the gospel about His work and His person, the death of the sinless Holy Son of God on the cross to appease the wrath of the Father, to be buried, raised again from the dead, conquering all sin and death on behalf of sinners, and believing that by grace through faith, you can have eternal life in His name, the greatest implication of all. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together and uh, the privilege to study Your Word together and worship. And now, God, we pray through Your Spirit, You'd help us prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.